0: In addition to our first sermon text today, just sung so beautifully by this congregation and our choir, our other text will be from the Gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter, verses 31 to 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you he said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless to our hearing and understanding this word of scripture. So here we are at our second of this sermon series. And... Just like last week, there are a number of texts, lots of material to cover, and don't worry, not a lot of pressure, but Vanessa did promise that I would have all the answers in this sermon today, so we'll see what we can find. Our scripture passage today is short, but it is very dense. It focuses really on the doomedness of our world our many sins and our inability to be reconnected with Jesus. He's looking towards the trial and his last days and execution that are to come and lamenting the fact that all he wants is to draw the children of Israel close to him, and he cannot. The theology that is presented here, Jesus preparing to sacrifice himself, for the unbelieving and disobedient children fits in well with a theory that is called substitutionary atonement. This theology, articulated very clearly in a treatise written by Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th and 12th centuries, means that Jesus took our place. The idea is that we owe God honor, obedience, respect, love. But because we are humans and we are imperfect, we fall short of what we owe to God. And there's no way that we can make up that debt. We are in debt to God for what we should have given God all along. And yet we can't repay it because everything we have and everything we are is already promised to God. There's nothing more we can give. So we can't pay the price ourselves, and we're doomed. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's this understanding of substitutionary atonement. Jesus comes in and steps into our place to pay what we cannot pay, to take the punishment that we deserve ourselves. This substitutionary theology is seen in the hymn we just sang as well. Would Christ, would God devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? The idea that we are sinners, we have fallen short, and because of us, Jesus has sacrificed his very life. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Once again, emphasizing that we ought to be in that place of punishment, but Jesus takes it for us. But drops of tears cannot repay the debt of love I owe. We are forever indebted for this gift. Now, this idea of substitution is not always bad. The emphasis that is seen in this hymn on unworthiness can be reassuring because, I don't know about you all, but I make a lot of mistakes. (laughs) I think every time... We fall short, we fail to live up to what God is calling us to do. It can be helpful to remember that even on our best days, nothing we do is able to earn us God's love. That gift of grace comes without our ability to be worthy of it. But regardless, it's a hard understanding to hold on to because Jesus taking our place and earning our, at, our atonement, our at-one-ment, coming back together and reconciling with God through his death, places God in the role of punisher. God is doling out that punishment, despite the emphasis throughout the Bible that forgiveness is what God calls us to. God is unable or unwilling to provide forgiveness without payment. And if God cannot take it in payment, God chooses instead to take it in blood. It's a strange picture for a God who is love. And so what we are doing in this sermon series is inviting you to think about other ways to understand what God might be doing in the cross. There are lots of different ways to conceive of it, and you will continue to hear different suggestions throughout the coming weeks. Maybe there's another way to understand what it means when we say that Jesus' death saves us. So last spring, I took a course at Yale Divinity School that was called Passion and Atonement. And it was sort of the inspiration for my Good Friday message last year, which then in turn became the inspiration for this sermon series. The course spent the entire semester focusing on the death of Jesus and what it means when we say that it brings us back to God, that it saves us, provides for our salvation. And one of the scholars that we read is a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. He wrote a book entitled The Crucified God. In Moltmann's understanding and his exploration of what it means that Jesus died for us, he focuses on a single moment in the passion story. The moment where Jesus is on the cross and cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sees in this moment deep suffering from Jesus, feeling abandoned amidst the pangs that will lead to his death. Now, last week, Vanessa, as she warned you she would do, committed, as she said, the cardinal sin of preaching, which was to put herself in a story in the place of Jesus and put herself as the hero of the story. But it's okay, I'm going to make up for it because I am going to overcorrect and ask that we put ourselves aside for a minute. Let's take ourselves out of this story. Instead of focusing on what Jesus' death means for us, Moltmann suggests that it is not false to think about our salvation, but it's not radical enough. We must go on to ask what does the cross of Jesus mean for God Himself? Moltmann looks at the crucifixion as a Trinitarian event, an event that is focused on God, and not just God, but God in three parts. God the parent, God the Son in Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Moltmann focuses on the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Yes, the pain and suffering, the physical death and the feelings of abandonment and loss that Jesus feels when he expresses that it seems that God is gone and is not answering. But Moltmann also says we need to look at God the parent in the position of suffering as well as God watches Jesus suffer. God experiences the pain of loss and grief just at the same time as God experiences the pain of death. In Moltmann's understanding, he pushes back against some Christian ideas that suggest that God is fully unchangeable and cannot be moved. He does argue that God doesn't change the way we change, God exists outside of time and beyond our understanding. So God doesn't change how humans change, but that doesn't mean God is incapable of change. And that change includes being impacted by our world. Moltmann says, Were God incapable of suffering in any respect, and therefore in an absolute sense, then he would also be incapable of love. If love is the acceptance of the other without regard to one's own well-being, then it contains within itself the possibility of sharing in suffering and freedom to suffer as a result of the otherness of the other. What he's saying here is not that love equals violence or suffering or that abuse, violence, harm should come alongside love. We know those not to be true but he is saying that love requires vulnerability. To truly love another person, you have to open yourself up to the possibility that you could harm that relationship or them, they could harm you, you could lose that person. Grief is as hard as it is because love is so strong. So here, as we watch the suffering, of Jesus, who is God incarnate, and of God the parent, we know that this suffering that comes from both sides is deeply enveloped in love. Moltmann says that in this moment of simultaneous suffering, the father and the son are the most separated in forsakenness that they could ever be and yet at the same time are most inwardly one in their surrender. They are unified in the love that they share and in the pain of loss and separation. It is the unconditioned and therefore boundless love, Moltmann says, which proceeds from the grief of the father and the dying of the son and reaches forsaken men in order to create in them the possibility and the force of new life. It is this moment of fully experiencing human suffering. In choosing to be incarnated as Jesus, God experienced human birth, God experienced life on earth, and finally experienced the pains of death and the pains of loss and grief. In doing this, all of the human experience, including our suffering, is brought within the identity of who God is. And this allows full communion with God. We're brought back into reconciliation and understanding and loving embrace with God. So if we return to our scripture for today, as Jesus looks towards Jerusalem and towards the death that he knows is coming, he laments not for his own life but for those that he loves. He does not relish the warning. He does not enjoy telling the people of Jerusalem that their destruction is to come. But he laments that he cannot bring them back into his embrace. He is immensely saddened at the violence that he watches humanity commit against each other. He says, Jerusalem, the city that stones its prophets... He is watching humans destroy each other, and he knows that the message of radical love and forgiveness that he is preaching will lead to violence against his own body. And yet he continues forward, not in fear or in anger, but in love and mourning for the people he loves so deeply. I don't, unfortunately, have all the answers. Maybe David will come up with some more next week. We'll have to see. But I do have one. And that answer is love. God loves us. Perhaps the first Bible verse that you memorized as a child was one that comes from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son that those who believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. It is from love that eternal life grows. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we are told by Jesus that the law and the prophets, all of our holiness that we see in this world, all of our understandings, hang on the commitment that we have made to love God and to love each other. Everything grows from that. We are saved by, for, and through the love that surpasses all understanding and explanation, all earning and deserving, all transactions and punishments. We are saved because God loves us. This is the central message of our scripture and our faith. So my challenge to you today is not to abandon your understandings of what it means when we say that Jesus died for us or for our sins. Not to abandon the way that you have viewed the cross, but to examine the understandings that you hold, the ones that you have inherited or been told, the ones that you have come to on your own through meditation or scripture reading, and to ask yourself the question, where do you see love present there? This should be the marker by which we measure all our theology, all our teachings. Where is the love of God in this story? I invite you to reflect this week not on your unworthiness for Jesus' sacrifice, but instead on the love that suffuses our scriptures and this story. What is love calling you to do? In Jesus, God was committed to radical, transformative love and was not swayed from that commitment even by the threat of violence and death. Not because that suffering is itself redemptive, but because God's love is so astounding that it was worth the risk. As we come back to Jesus and draw near, just as children draw near their parents, just as we are. We will sing a new hymn towards the end of our service today, Just As I Am. In the lyrics of this hymn, we sing that our only plea, our only request, is that God calls us back again and again to be held in loving embrace. We come as we are with our failings and fears, just as we are knowing that God will break down our boundaries and our barriers to entrance and that God will welcome us in. This radical, welcoming, all-consuming and unconditional love is love that can save the world. Amen.